You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Justin Gregg, who is with the uh, Dolphin Communication Project, also teaches at St. Francis Xavier University, and is the author of this book, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. So Justin, I think the motivation for this book, I mean, we don't really have an agreement on what intelligence is, but I think everyone agrees that intelligence is a good thing, right? <laughs> and when we're trying to figure out what makes humans distinctive, I think what we're really saying is, what is it that makes humans better than all of the other animals? And not a lot of people have really questioned that. Nietzsche is famous for having questioned that a little bit and saying, hey, maybe this intelligence thing isn't such a great thing after all. And I think you follow in his footsteps by asking the same question. I'm assuming that a lot of your work with dolphins has informed your research. You talk a bit about slugs and bed bugs, and, you know, lots of other animals in the course of the book. But even though we're all scientists, it, it seems like this idea of kind of human superiority, it's sort of a religious disposition in a way. And, it, you know, I mean, maybe there's never been a time when humans didn't think of themselves as being in some ways superior to the rest of the world as masters of the universe. So maybe we should start off by just saying, is there anything that we agree upon when we're thinking about what intelligence is and what makes us uniquely intelligent? Or is it just a whole bunch of different definitions that are overlapping, but there's no coherent agreement? Yeah, that is a great question. I love how you started off by saying the problem was that intelligence is always seen as good. And that's the sort of basis for the whole book is like to explore whether or not that's true, which is exactly my point for it. But yes, the problem then when you're defining intelligence is what is it that we're actually talking about? I sidestep even trying to provide a definition. If you notice in the introduction, I never actually agree on one. I provide definitions coming from different disciplines. So you have my discipline, which is animal cognition. And we would define intelligence in a different way from someone studying human psychology mm. and certainly differently from someone studying artificial intelligence. And so the point is we sort of all kind of know what we mean when we see or observe intelligent behavior in animals or in software systems. And so as you mentioned, I then say, okay, well, all of those things we're talking about are things that we see in human style thinking, which clearly produces complex intelligent behavior. So let's just look at them one by one, these big ones under the umbrella of intelligence and say, well, what specifically is happening here? And do we find this in other systems? It's the Justice Potter thing, which I'm sure you you study legal stuff. You know all about this. It's I know it when I see it. That's what intelligence is. Yeah, but I think the problematic aspect of it seems to be more around consciousness. And you do kind of make a distinction because, you know, when we see our Roomba going around the room picking stuff up, right? There's an element of intelligence there. And it's similar, I think, to the intelligence of the bed bug, which by the way, I was fascinated by how intelligent those things are. But you know, no one thinks that the Roomba experiences any kind of existential angst. And nobody thinks that the bed bug <laughs> experiences any kind of anxiety or existential crisis. So I mean, is it about consciousness? You talk later about consciousness or kind of metacognition. Is the book really about intelligence or is it about kind of this metacognition that makes humans 
kind of different. Part of what you're describing is continuity and part of it is about discontinuity. I think that's really where your dialogue is. Yeah, the consciousness question is very much wrapped up into a discussion of intelligence, but it is, in a way, thoroughly separate from it. Metacognition would be an awareness of your own thinking, a conscious awareness, which allows you to deliberate on the nature of your thinking and come up with good solutions. And that is something that an animal might or might not have that would nonetheless be behaving intelligently. And so certainly in AI, you can imagine that there's an intelligent system, so one capable of flexibility within problem solving that you would never ascribe consciousness to because the underlying mechanisms driving the behavior themselves are complex or effective or however you want to define intelligence without the requirement of consciousness or metacognition per se. So although it's often wrapped up to a description of human intelligence because we are aware of our thinking a lot of the time and the complex things we do require consciousness to some extent, it is separate. It lives separately. It's one of the things that we have. Well, this goes into the definition of consciousness because I use a very pared back version of it, which is just any subjective experience whatsoever. So metacognition wouldn't even fit under that label. So consciousness is its own entity, I would say, not required for intelligent behavior. Well, let's kind of dig into each of the different, because you're right. I mean, each, each chapter kind of discusses a different aspect of what we might think of as intelligence. And one of the things that you offer up as a potential source of human distinctiveness is that we are what you call kind of why specialists. And this requires a certain type of, a certain type of reasoning, right? It involves causal inference. Could you dig into that a little bit? I mean, I've talked to so many different guests who every one of them has a different definition of human distinctiveness. And so I kind of like this one. Could you discuss it? At what point does the kind of understanding of the world change when one starts asking this why question? Yeah, I singled that one out as the most important one, simply because anything that you look around that we would attribute to our intelligence as important or different or unique comes from causal inference. It comes from the interest and the ability, but both interest and ability, in asking why something happens. So simply a correlation, like a learned association, that's how learning happens throughout the animal kingdom, even in single cellular organisms. It's pretty common and it's very powerful. However, causal inference, that's something perhaps unique to our species, that allows us to invent things like science. We can ask why things happen. We can design experiments to figure out whether or not the underlying proposed mechanisms are real or not. And that produces engineering and science and all of the stuff that we have. So in that sense, it's very powerful. And it would have been with us maybe a couple hundred thousand years ago when Homo sapiens first evolved. But it wasn't really until 40 or 30,000 years ago when you see the effects of that kind of reasoning on the world. That's when our cities pop into being and all of our massive cultural phenomena in our societies, our legal systems, all of it attributable to causal inference. So it really makes us who we are. So would we know if an animal was engaging in causal inference? Like, How would we distinguish it from other type of reasoning if we observed it? There are plenty of scientists who've designed experiments to look for it. And I talk about the string pulling one in the book, and that's where crows and other species have to pull on a string to understand that it will get the food that's tied at the bottom of the string closer. So they're reasoning out why the series of behaviors produces the effect they want. And there are examples of animals behaving as if they are using causal inference, like primates, the great apes, there are examples. But 
for every example of that, you have another animal cognition researcher who says, no, you can still arrive at that an explanation through basic learned association. So it's very controversial. Even those small subset of tiny little examples are still controversial, which just, I think, proves that learned associations are exceedingly powerful. All of the intelligent behavior we see from other animals can be produced through learned associations as it is just for you and I when we're going about our daily lives. So it's it's hard to know, but again, you know it when you see it. If we were to see chimpanzees and crows with chemistry sets on the top of the trees, you know, like working on trying to figure out nuclear fusion or whatever, yeah, okay, then they're definitely using causal inference, but they don't seem to be using it, whereas the only way we got to the moon was through causal inference. Well, okay, so the crows aren't on the moon, you know, but can maybe just tell us a bit more about that experiment. I use, I referenced this in my class yesterday. <laughs> I was reading the book. Oh, great. That's exciting. Yeah. You know, when you're preparing for the exam, make sure you kind of lay out a plan. Cause you, I think you said that what the crows are doing is they're, they're seeing into the situation, right? They're, they're kind of scoping out the situation before they act. And they're like, oh, okay, here's what I have to do. But just tell me a little more, like, what is it that we're observing in them that makes us think that this is something other than either a hardwired understanding of physics or something that they have learned through, say, trial and error. Where is that leap? <laughs> what is it? So that's it. It's the difference between trial and error, which is a form of learned associations, and seeing into the problem, the insight. And so you will, you'll have experiments where you'll have some of the smarter animals, parrots and crows and chimpanzees, and you give them a weird problem. And they can either solve it, so they have sort of two choices, by just doing a series of random activities until something happens, and then they learn, ooh, when I do this, that happens, that's good, that's closer to solving the problem, and then they sort of keep building off of that. Or sometimes you will observe cases where a crow will stare at a problem for a few seconds, seemingly trying to understand the mechanisms involved of freeing the food that's behind this series of things, and it will just go over and start doing the things in the right order to get the food. If it's a brand new thing, it's they've never seen it before, and that's how they approach it, it has to be more like they understood the nature of the problem and the underlying behaviors and the steps needed to achieve the goal. So that would be more like insight. That's more like causal reasoning. But again, that is seemingly relatively rare. I like how we tend to think it's more likely that they're engaging in some sophisticated reasoning if they're kind of staring at the problem for a little while <laughs> and thinking. I know in a lot of folks in the um, AI world, when they're creating these automated interfaces with humans, sometimes they'll build in a little bit of a delay, right? So, you know, when you're applying for the job, the algorithm calculates whether you got the job in like microseconds, but they'll bake in like a little three-second delay to make you think that the algorithm is deliberating, <laughs> you know, <laughs> feels better. That is one of the problems, again, when we are interpreting the behavior of these animals, we are using ourselves as the example. We're the prototype. And so if they act a bit like us, then perhaps the same mechanisms are involved. And it becomes so tricky to pull apart, like, wow, are those mechanisms the same or are they just using another version of learned associations or whatever. It's like the, I love this example of, they were teaching and it was a learning AI that learned the difference between these two X-rays. You probably have heard this story. And so it seemed like it had figured out how to diagnose, I think it was lung cancer or pneumonia, it was pneumonia. And so everyone was amazed that it had figured this out. But actually when you dug down into what was going on, it was just 
the AI had learned to tell the difference between two different x-ray machines from two different hospitals that had different rates of pneumonia. And so it learned something, but not in the way we thought, because it's a bit of a black box. So yeah, animals are a black box as well. We don't know exactly how they're getting to where they're getting. Well, you use the example of pigeons, right? And they trained pigeons to engage in some classification exercise, and they, they did a fantastic job. It was, I think that was also medical diagnostics, right? I think that was lung cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's simply just because their visual acuity is better than a human. But if you think about a radiologist, what they're doing in that moment is they're also going through their data bank of things that they have learned and what it means. And so even diagnosing cancer, if you're a radiologist, isn't causal inference. That's just being a really good AI or a really good pigeon. I don't mean to slight the radiologist. You're brilliant people. But <laughs> no, no, I, 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 in my class, I often say we really don't need these radiologists anymore, right? We can replicate what they're doing. But this asking of the why question, right? This often can lead to some unhappiness. I mean, you cite in your book about when your daughter first started asking these questions about why does the universe exist and why do I exist and that sort of thing. And ultimately, she started thinking about her own death, right? Yeah. And so are those types of questions evolutionarily adaptive or are those questions just sort of a, a byproduct of our engaging in causal reasoning about the world? You talk about also the thanatology, right? And an awareness of our own mortality. And you spin the story as if there's the first human to think about their mortality and what gave them an advantage. And if they had a disadvantage, then they would have, their line would have disappeared and all the rest of us would no longer be thinking about our mortality. But that may not be adaptive, may just be a byproduct. I mean, there's no way to, to kind of be an observant individual and not notice this, right? Yeah. And I sort of make that argument because it is a question of what benefit is this knowledge of our own deaths providing to us? My idea, it's not just mine, there's a lot of big thinkers out there who've said this before, is that it's sort of a byproduct. The capacity to think about the future and, and have a level of self-awareness where you can imagine yourself in that future, including being dead, is very useful to us because we can plan our behavior very far into to the future. We can plan for our retirement. That's helpful. But this existential angst, this knowledge of death, that can be crippling and it does kill people. It is wrapped up into suicide and things. And so it's not adaptive in that sense. But like all things in evolution, it just has to be good enough to not kill us to be worth having. I always think of the size of the human head and the size of the human birth canal. Like they just match up enough so that not everyone is dying in childbirth, but any bigger or any narrower and we'd be hosed. But that doesn't mean childbirth isn't dangerous. It's exceedingly, it, a lot of people have died. And so this knowledge of death, it's there, it's happened. It doesn't kill us most of the time and it benefits us most of the time, but just barely. It's just eking out a victory, if you know what I mean. But it seems like the awareness of death co-evolved with religious beliefs in the afterlife, right? And so for most of human history, that awareness of death was, you know, was, it wasn't as pronounced as perhaps it is in an era that is devoid of those religious beliefs. It'd certainly be more a problem in a secular sort of society because you would have had answers to those which helped you survive on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, that's one of the ideas about how religion popped around. It's very simple, too simple, perhaps. But that is also tied into this concept of denial, which is which I think it was Ernst Becker. The idea that when we learned about death, we also had a cognitive capacity to allow us not to think about it too much. Or in this case, 
to have an explanation, to ask a why question. Why do we have to die? Then we deal with things like the afterlife and religion pops into view. And so these are mechanisms to soften the blow of the reality of our own deaths. And so, yeah, those would have co-sprung up, maybe not evolved in the sense that natural selection wasn't creating religion, but they would have come into us culturally around the same time and allowed us to thrive. Now, when you talk about causal inference and how it can sometimes go wrong, you mentioned chicken butt solutions right? and, and humorism. I, I, I've never heard about this. You can tell us a bit about it, but it doesn't seem like humans are uniquely susceptible to improper inference, right? I guess animals would fall prey to associationalism of a different kind, right? I mean, there's all sorts of examples of where pigeons develop an association between something and a reward or a punishment, right, that is completely accidental. So are humans sort of better or worse Bayesian reasoners than other creatures? And is humor, are these kind of traps that we fall into, like chicken butt reasoning? I mean, is it just that they're stickier and that they don't go away over time? I guess with an animal, presumably, they would do this chicken butt thing for a while and then they'd sort of realize, oh, this doesn't work, and they would somehow drop their belief in it. Yeah, that's a great question because, yes, animals will learn the wrong things all of the, incessantly. Like if you have a cat or a dog, you watch them screwing things up all the time through learned associations. But for that example, it's sticky, yes, from a cultural perspective. But the big difference is scale. We can scale up a wrong uh, explanation at a societal level. So just like we can have a proper solution spread very rapidly, an incorrect solution will also spread very rapidly. Absolutely. Like a flat earth that's very popular. What, what's happening there? Or like humorism is a great example because that was a dominant medical theory for centuries. And it just, it built on itself and it expanded through culture. And at the base, it was fundamentally wrong. So that I think is the difference. Because if my cat learns something stupid, it's not going to spread it to every other cat on the planet. You know, every time you hear a bell, you get food. That might not always be true. So I think it's the scale issue that makes us different. As with all of the problems I outline in the book, it's always a question of scale because we can scale things up and those things are sometimes very destructive. Right, and another distinctive feature of humans is our ability to kind of plan for the future. And you have this great example with Santino, right, who <laughs> stored up rocks so that he could pelt them at visitors, right? That seems to be different from the storing of nuts by, say, squirrels for the winter, right? So what makes that different? Santino is a great example because he passed something called the Bishop Köhler test, which was, can you plan for a future in which you're going to feel different than you do in the moment? So uh, storing nuts for the winter is its own problem because that's something a squirrel will do even if it's never seen a winter before. So that's obviously working at a fundamentally different instinctual, as it were, level. But what Santino was doing was he knew that in the afternoon some visitors would show up and that he was going to hate them because he did not like people coming in and gawking at him. And so in the morning when he was not visibly annoyed, he would calmly go and collect rocks, put them over in a location, and then five or six hours later when people showed up, he would go over to that rock pile really angry and start chucking rocks at people. And so he was planning for a future in which he knew that he himself, not only was he going to be in that future, but his feelings, his emotions would be different than he had in the moment. And that requires a level of sort of complex insight into who you are and what feelings are, so conscious awareness of them, and combining that with planning. And so that kind of complexity is relatively rare. There are not a lot of examples. And again, even that example is debated within the literature as to whether or not that was really what happened, or if it was just more complex learned associations again. 
But I think that's a great example of future planning in a human-like way. So is it, is it because it's affective forecasting? I mean, how is it different from the birds? You mentioned some birds that they would get a varied food diet and they would kind of recognize that the diet they're going to get is going to be short in something. So they kind of stash away yes. the surplus, right? I mean, is, is that similar? It's just that they're predicting their hunger or their nutritional needs? It's very similar. That was predicting not just their hunger, but their preferences because they liked both kinds of food. So they would stash equal amounts of the two different foods in two places so that when they woke up in the morning, they could eat from both because they knew that they liked both. And so that, again, is an awareness of your preferences and being able to plan for the future. But a lot of the time when an animal is doing something, it's because in that moment, it feels a certain way. So even like a lion that's going out and hunting, it's got a whole complicated series of behaviors it needs to engage in to get food but it's because it's hungry. It's not planning to go and kill something when it's not hungry and then store it for later. That would be a human-like way of dealing with a problem. So these animals seem to be better than, than you are when it comes to late night playing music with your band, right? Well, that's, yes, that's the example I have for prognostic myopia, which is humans can think about and plan for the future, but our, our brains are just like any other animal designed to deal with the here and now. So like when I'm out playing with my band, and I'm feeling tired, a normal, intelligent animal, not a human, would be like, oh, I'm going to go to bed now. But I'm like, ah, oh, well, I'll wait to go to bed because I'm having a good time and I'll stay out too late and then regret it the next day. So in that sense, our ability for planning for the future is fighting with our current needs and we make the wrong decisions. Yeah. But I mean, the difference is that we're constantly kind of reminding ourselves about these defects in our planning, right? And trying to improve upon them. And we have books out there that we buy to try to, you know, become better planners and better decision makers. And our uh, feathered friends don't have this stack of books down at the airport that they can pick up, right? No, they just follow their biology. And the fact that they are even here right now means that biology has been working for them for millions of years. And so if we were less able to think about the future and worry about those books and what's in them and just followed our sort of base needs, maybe we'd be better off. I don't know about that, frankly. We might be, it might be worse off, but yeah, they're not burdened with those books. We're burdened with those books. Well, so another thing you talk about is theory of mind. I mean, I think you have this chapter and it's all about deception, but really what it's about is theory of mind. And that's another thing that people point to as a source of human distinctiveness. So to what extent do we find theory of mind in, in other animals? Another debatable uh, series of experiments that shows some of the great apes might have theory of mind. They can engage in deceptive behaviors or other behaviors that make it look as if they are thinking and are concerned with what each other are thinking. So you need to distinguish between kind of deception, which does not involve theory of mind, right? Like mimicry and concealment and so forth from the kind of deception that requires theory of mind. Yeah, like so if an opossum plays dead, what happens then is that another animal that was going to eat it looks at it and thinks, oh, this is a rotten piece of meat, I don't want it, and they leave. So that possum is providing false information to the predator. But that's just a behavior that a possum will automatically do. It hasn't thought about a deceptive technique because it knows that the lion wants to eat it, and it knows that animal doesn't like rotten meat. It doesn't need to know any of that, and it just produces the behavior. Whereas a human... We might see a lion coming at us and we might understand that lion is hungry because we're curious as to what the animal's thinking and feeling. And that allows us to then manipulate that lion in a way that another animal couldn't. Like we could take our ham sandwich and throw it at the lion because we know it's hungry and that would save us. So that's a tactic that another animal can't 
do because they can't reason about what a lion is thinking. Now, and I think Nietzsche said that animals are ahistorical, right? And that what makes us distinctive is sense of history. And part of that, of course, is this episodic foresight that you talk about, right? And part of it is also this mental time travel that you talk about. You know, how do we know that animals don't have a sense of history? Well, Nietzsche was mostly wrong on that account. Well, he didn't spend a lot of time writing about this, but when he did, he said that animals lived in the moment. They didn't think about the past, even the near past or the near future. Now, we know that they're going to be carrying around the past with them, right, because of learned associations and stuff, but that's not quite the same as I don't know, reflecting on the past. Or... Well, that's it. He thought that they were reflecting on their past and thinking about their mortality. That's not what they do. And he's right to some extent about that. But like the Santino example or the birds that save for the next morning, they do think about like the next day, maybe, or the day after, maybe. There's some experiments. But that's it. They're not thinking about 10 years down the road. And so that is what humans can do. We have the ability to project ourselves through mental time travel into different scenarios in the future and then plan for them pretty long term. And you would note, essentially, it's always the case that you would be able to tell if your dog was planning for next week because its behavior would be fundamentally different than what it does. It's obviously living for the most part from meal to meal or just looking forward to you coming home, for example. But it's not thinking about what its plans are for Christmas. Whereas humans, if you observe human behavior... Uh, like if two people are talking and then six hours later they meet up at the restaurant together, you can only explain that behavior through the fact that they knew what they were going to be doing six hours from the future. So again, that ability to mentally time travel, to think about the future, that's seemingly unique to us. And so in that sense, Nietzsche was correct. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about how humans probably are inadequately thinking about their future, right? So you talk about prognostic myopia. I certainly spent a lot of time in my teaching trying to get people to think, you know, a little bit more long-term. I mean, I teach finance, right? So of course I spent a lot of time getting people to kind of lower, lower their discount rates and eliminate their hyperbolic discounting. But it seems like you're saying the humans are particularly bad at this, but everything in the book seems to be pointing in the other direction, that humans have the capacity to be much, much better than animals in this regard, yes. but that they, you know, maybe they're not doing it as much as they should, right? But is that, is that a product of human intent? I mean, is it, is, what is it about humans that might make them worse than animals? I mean, we know what makes them better, but is there anything that makes them worse? Yeah, well, the issue being that we can, on paper, cognitively, think about the future and plan for it, unlike an animal. So that we're better at, for sure. But our biology is focused on the moment. So when you're telling people how to invest properly, it's, you know, you have to bypass their natural inclination to not save money, to not put money away, like have it happen automatically from their paycheck, otherwise they're not gonna do it. And so it's that disconnect between being able to know about the future, amazing, good stuff, and not actually doing anything about it and not caring. And so the issue is that in some domains, that's a big problem. Not saving for the, your retirement, that's a problem. But things like climate change or you might have a short-term plan to build like a housing project somewhere, but, but you know on paper it might be a problem for the watershed underneath. And yet you can ignore that because you'll, you know, maybe we'll figure out a solution in the future for it. It doesn't seem as important what might happen 100 years from now as what's happening right now to us. So that's that disconnect between 
how important the future feels to us and how important the moment feels to us causes all of this trouble. And so for that simple reason, because animals can't think about the future, they're focused on the here and now, they don't get themselves into extinction level trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we're, I think we're certainly better at planning for the future. It's just that we, you know, we have a lot more weapons of destruction at our disposal. I mean, you know, if, if you unleash a bunch of rats on a Polynesian island, they're not all going to get together and say, hey, you know what? We ought to not eat all these birds because, you know, our grandchildren are going to need some, right? Like, they're certainly no better than than we are. It's just that they don't have kind of, you know, nuclear weapons to, you know, to destroy all the, all the rats. Well, you've hit the nail on the head because you could think that I'm arguing like, well, natural is better than naturalistic fallacy. Like, the world will find a balance, which is not true. Like you say, if you put a bunch of cane toads in Australia, they will annihilate the place. Like any animal will drive everything to extinction if allowed to go unchecked. So that's not it. It's just when we do rampage through the planet with our intellect and our ability to plan for the future, it's just the level of destruction is <laughs> immense because we have nuclear weapons. We have technologies and combustion engines that animals don't have. So in that sense, the intelligence becomes a liability because of, again, I think it's a scale issue. Well, the, towards the end of the book, I mean, you say that the most important questions are one about values. And, you know, these are non-scientific questions. And it, indeed, the whole book is informed by this idea, which is, hey, you know, is this good thing or bad thing, right? And, of course, that's what Nietzsche was concerned about. And you discussed this debate you had, I think it was with your friend Brendan. That's right. Right, about, you know, like who's winning? And I think the sort of classic argument that goes back, I guess, to the Renaissance is that humans were on this planet to conquer fortuna, right? We're here to just kind of dominate the place. And it's hard to argue with that. I mean, we've, what is it, 95% of all the mammal mass on the planet is either humans or livestock. I mean, you know, you can't go anywhere on earth and not see the footprint of humans. So it seems like we've really shaped the world to suit our preferences, right? I mean, and so your friend Brendan would say, we're winning this game, right? I mean, how can you argue with that? Well, it's, it's a great argument because on the face of it, it seems absurd what I'm saying. I'm saying, well, intelligence isn't maybe not that great, is my argument, because it's a problem. And he's like, what are you talking about? I mean, look at what we've accomplished. There's like you say, 95% of the mammal mass is, is humans. Like we are dominating this place. We've gone to the moon. We have vaccines. He thought I was an idiot. And to some extent, he's true. But what I'm saying is, how do you judge whether or not something is good or bad when it comes to biology? Like intelligence as a concept, an umbrella concept, is something that we have. Is it good or bad? It came to us biologically. And what I'm saying is if you look at the future, two, three, four hundred years down the road, we very well might not be here. So the, uh, because of our intelligence, because of these nuclear weapons or climate change or what have you, at which point, if you look back at the history of our species, just this 40,000 year period in which a lot of humans popped up changed the surface of the planet, and then disappeared. And so on the grand scale of life, that's nothing. And so it wasn't a very successful thing that we evolved, this intelligence, if we go extinct in 200 years. And so that's it's the tension, on again, on scale. Like, I would say that that's bad. I don't think we should go extinct. That doesn't seem like a good thing. Whereas he says, yeah, but at least in the short term, we created poetry and music, which is a perfectly good argument. And so... It really is down to your personal preference as to what you think is more successful of those two options. Well, in finance, we talk about picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. 
And, you know, so you can, you can look at like an asset manager and every year they're making like good returns. And, and, uh, and then you say, yeah, but those good returns are going to get wiped out, right? Next time we have a financial crisis. And I, I think that's part of what your argument is that all of this is built on very fragile foundation. And if we take a really long view, this is going to be looked back on by extraterrestrial <laughs> observers as sort of this flash in the pan moment, right? That's exactly it. The long view is like picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. You know, that might be wrong because we might pull ourselves out of it and not go extinct. But at the moment, that steamroller is coming very close and we're celebrating all of our nickels, perhaps when we shouldn't be. But I think you're making another point, which is that if we take utilitarianism seriously, then perhaps we're not as happy or well off as we could be. And in two senses, right? One, that humans have, you know, a lot of, a lot of misery that's a direct result of their intelligence, right? And that the cow and the your chickens, for instance, your chickens in your yard, they, they seem pretty happy relative to all of the folks on antidepressants. Presumably you don't give your chickens antidepressants, I'm, I'm guessing. I don't think they need them. No, granted your chickens have a pretty darn artificial, humanly created life. They're not out there getting, you know, running, running from the wolves and predators. But the other thing I think you argue that, you know, not only are, could humans be happier, but these other creatures, right, many of them have pretty miserable existence because of humans. And you talk about how you rescued these drones. Oh, yeah. I was a little, <laughs> I was like, okay, this is where, this is where I think you're, you're an unusual individual, right? And going out and rescuing the slugs from underneath the tires in your car, I mean, surely an awareness of all of these creatures suffering must drive you a little bit nuts, right? Yeah. It becomes absurd in a daily life sort of way, or it can be. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm a fully functional human being. I just, I think it'd be weird to, to step on a slug. However, there are, you know, the religions like Jainism, where they are literally trying not to kill even the smallest things. And that's very uh, debilitating. But mine is more, it's not, sometimes I step on a slug, it's okay. I'm not having a mental breakdown. I'll be all right. But it's just in the moment where I have a decision to make whether to move a slug from under my tire or not, it's just such a simple act on my part to move it out that it seems crazy to me not to do it. If I accept, which I do because I follow the science, I believe that this is correct, that they have some kind of subjective experience, enough at least for pleasure and pain. So it seems a real bummer to me to remove an animal from the world that is, could experience pleasure. And so I, I just, that's what I do. It's not a hard, like, again, I'm not a moral philosopher. I'm not advocating for a moral lifestyle. It's just that informs my behavior in the moment is what I think I understand about their minds. Again, I talk about in the book, like, it's all hugely arbitrary and hypocritical a lot of the time as to what I do and do not do. But, I mean, every human has a line somewhere about what they will and will not do to either another human or an animal. Uh, so a lot of people would be have very strong feelings about how to treat a cat or a dog, but then allow a pig to be turned into bacon. And because, the, and I'm not, again, I'm not a vegetarian myself. And so we're always drawing arbitrary lines. And if you really sit down with an ethical philosopher and discuss why you believe what you believe, it gets really messy. So most people don't, <laughs> which can be difficult, I think. So, you know, I was wondering if we were to kind of take this more utilitarian approach and think, you know, more seriously about the well-being of other creatures, would we want to have like a sliding scale? I mean, I certainly, in, in when I'm thinking about my impact on the, the animal world, I, I certainly think about 
intelligence along a continuum, right? So for instance, I, I mean, I'm not a vegetarian, but I don't eat pork unless it's from like my butcher because I know that mm-hmm. those pigs are taken good care of, right? But, you know, I'm a little less particular <laughs> about the oysters. <laughs> you know, I'm not really too concerned about the oysters uh, suffering in their farms. Does it make sense to think about intelligence along a continuum? When it comes to de- deciding whether or not to eat and or kill an animal or use it for something, it seems to be the natural thing to do. And, and I teach about this in my Animal Minds class. It's in a seminar I teach. And I, I present all this information about how animals think. And then at the end of it, we get into these sort of welfare discussions about utilitarianism. And so I was combing through the literature of the sort of hardcore utilitarian philosophers like Peter Singer or uh, Francione and these people who were advocate for not using animals for anything because you want them to, you know, want to deprive them of pleasure. And then you ask, where do they draw the line, right? Because this is always the question. And nowadays, there's a lot of talk about insects and subjective experience and consciousness. Lars Chitka just has this beautiful new book, uh, Mind of a Bee, about that. And you, you get them to commit, like, is it okay to kill an insect? And some of them would say, yeah. And some of them would say, I'm not sure yet. It depends on the science. And some would say no. And so they're drawing a line, just like you're saying, based on some concept of intelligence or consciousness or subjective experience somewhere. You have to draw it somewhere, no matter who you are and what kind of philosopher. So you can follow the science, but at some point, it's not providing you very many answers. And so you have to sort of pick a place where you will eat an animal or not, or how you will use an animal. And it is all a bit arbitrary. Well, I mean, if, if, we, if we believe that there's a continuum, right, in, across these different species, then does it make sense to think about a continuum, like, within a species? I mean, obviously, the least intelligent person is going to be more intelligent than the most intelligent pig, one would hope. But in our own lives, does it make sense to think of us as, as living more intelligent lives? I mean, when, you, when you're thinking about things like metacognition, when you're thinking about forecasting, when you think about theory of mind, we can walk through our lives more or less in a daze, right? Just responding to the environment, almost like our Roombas. Or we can walk through our lives with a high degree of awareness. I and mean, I think what Nietzsche was advocating his readers was a heightened level of awareness and it wasn't one that corresponded to conventional notions of happiness, right? So if you're a utilitarian of the simplistic variety, then it would be very difficult to explain the life that Nietzsche chose for himself. And I think what he was saying is that suffering, as only humans can suffer, is in some ways better than the bliss of a chicken in your yard, right? Sometimes he, he seems to have come down on that. I mean, suffering for him was important for his philosophy, but he also did in in some passages lament that he wished he didn't have to because it would be fun to be sort of a blissful cow that is unaware. So he was of two minds, really. But no, for the most part, like it became an important aspect of his philosophy. But then from a biological perspective, he had a lot of misery because of that. And so without all the highfalutin thinking that he did about whether or not that has intrinsic value to suffer, you can simply say, well, he was an unhappier man than my cat. And so that's bad if you wanted to be very simplistic about it. So the thing about when you go back to thinking about intelligence, like this ranking intelligences between within a species like a human or you're between different humans or between different cats, You can kind of do that, but then you fall back into this trap of like, what do we mean when we mean intelligence? We've got this umbrella term again. And so then you can, then you start picking out the individual things like, well, does your cat have 
theory of mind. And so then it all gets it gets quite messy again. So so humans, of course, rank intelligence. But what we're really asking most of the time is, does that animal behave in a human-like way or not? Because a human-like way is a better way. And that's that's always in the book. That's the thing I challenge. I'm like, well, maybe being intelligent like a human, like Nietzsche was doing, it being sad about your life and having existential crises is objectively bad. Yeah, but I think it's a different type of intelligence, right? I think what I got out of your book was that reflecting on, in trying to figure out what it is that makes us different from humans, and we think it has to do with intelligence, makes us realize that we have all of these different definitions of, of intelligence. And yet, for some reason, we always keep going back to this G, right? Like, okay, you can solve logical puzzles, right? But I mean, that doesn't really have much to do with, you know, forecasting the future or with theory of mind. I mean, these, these are things that may or may not be correlated with what we call G. I mean, when you're talking about Greta and she said that she was a bit autistic and maybe this is why she was so concerned about the future, but the people who seem to be blissfully unaware <laughs> of the impending doom may be, you know, more intelligent along some of these other dimensions that you articulate, right? Yeah, that is correct. In so many cases, this concept of G also trips us up because, like you point out, it doesn't really apply to things like your cat. So then, you're again, you're talking about another thing. And whether or not that thing leads to, like Greta, people with autism, for example, might have a deficit in theory of mind. They may be less aware of or concerned with what other people are thinking. And that's just a different way of, of being a human. Whether or not that is good or bad, that is a different kind of question. <laughs> you know what I mean? Once you start doing cross-species comparisons and ask about what intelligence is and what its value is, everything gets very messy, which is why I love breaking it down in the book into very component parts. Are we better off, for example, with linguistic abilities? Well, you know, you, you mentioned dolphins only briefly in the book, but I'm, I'm, you spend an awful lot of amount of time thinking about dolphins. Would dolphins have nuclear power plants if only they had opposable thumbs? And Like in the Simpsons episode, yeah. Right? I mean, is it physical limitations that prevent them from building pyramids and so forth? How should we be thinking about animals like dolphins? Yeah, dolphins in lab studies, when you look at their ability to use symbols or problem solve, they're on par with the great apes a lot of times or the corvids like crows and ravens. So then the question is, and it's true, it's best exemplified by chimpanzees. Why don't chimpanzees do the things that humans do? Mm -hmm. Why, even when you bring them into the lab, like they would have in the 50s and 60s, and try and teach them English or try and teach them how to like make their own clothes or prepare supper, ultimately they don't really care to learn it or can't learn it. And so what is the problem? And so you have to, after having studied animal cognition, accept that animals... A, don't need to do those things because they get by just fine without it, and B, can't. I don't. I think the reasons dolphins don't build uh, nuclear facilities under under the water is because A, is because they can't, nor would they need to. They're perfectly fine without it. Mm -hmm. And so to, to what extent are the things that you describe as the height of intelligence or the things that are kind of uniquely human, to what extent are they functional and to what extent might they be, you know, what Stephen Jay Gould called spandrels? Which of these have been instrumental to our proliferation and which of them are sort of byproducts. And if we could actually somehow fine-tune our intelligence, if we had control over 
picking the, the, the best bits and discarding the worst bits, which of these would we want to discard? Well, that's a great question. So much of what we do, in a sense, is what we produce is a spandrel. It's a combination of these things working together, creating stuff that natural selection never had to deal with, really. And there's not enough time scale to even work on it at the moment. But things like theory of mind, that seems to be very important because that gets you into deception and it also gets you into language. Linguistic capability, that's really the hallmark of human thinking. And caught up into that is causal inference. You combine those things together and then you have the human ability with metacognition and the things available to our consciousness to do all the stuff that we suddenly do. And it explodes this culture around us and these societies. And how much of that was selected for, it's difficult to say. Because again, if you look at the history of our species for a couple hundred thousand years, we weren't doing anything with that stuff. We weren't building cities. We were living in small groups just like chimpanzees. If those attributes had been selected for, they were to solve problems at that time, um, which are thoroughly different from the problems we are dealing with. So nearly everything that we're doing is a weird byproduct of those abilities, I think. And so what would you remove to, to make us less? I always think about this in terms of if another species had evolved those same traits, would it produce the same sort of problems that we produce? What if those slugs or bed bugs or crows or chimpanzees? And I think a lot of the problems I'm talking about, our, our biases, our psychology, is based on the fact that we are a great ape species that is relatively violent, maybe not as violent as a chimpanzee, but certainly more violent than a bonobo. And so the problems are created by our psychology and our need to live in a primate-like way, but then in this intellectual world that we've created through all these cognitive skills. And so another species that had come from a different biological background, a different social background, might have a completely different set of problems, probably just as bad, or maybe not. Maybe they would not be destroying the planet, and they'd be able to cooperate on a global scale if it was ants, for example. But then, then again, like you point out, you drop rats on an island somewhere, and they'll take over everything and kill it. If you gave a bunch of ants theory of mind and language, they'd probably just destroy the Earth and colonize Mars. Well, our intelligence has led to a lot of problems. Hopefully it lead to a lot of solutions as well. And I think what your book does is it tries to help us think through kind of what's a feature and what's a bug of human intelligence. And, and if, we, if we can figure out what's a feature and what, what's a bug, you know, maybe we might be able to do a little kind of intellectual genetic modification <laughs> to, to kind, of, kind, of, kind of prune out some of those bugs. Justin, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoy it. This book is called If Nature Were a Narwhal. I have to admit that was a question that never occurred to me before reading this book. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> but now I think I have a better sense. I think he might experience more pleasure if he were a narwhal over the course of his life, but I'm not sure that if you offered him the choice of becoming a narwhal, he would take it. I'm pretty sure he would reject that option. I think you're right. So he wouldn't want to be a narwhal. He was happy being kind of miserable and smart. Yeah. And I think you and I both would probably also reject that option. Yeah. I'm happy with this. I love uh, hanging around and talking about this stuff and watching Netflix. I wouldn't trade that in for happiness. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thanks so much, Justin. We'll hopefully we'll chat again soon. Thanks. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.